I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I am joined by Daniel Harrigus, senior editor of Strong Towns. Welcome back, Daniel. Hi, Abby. Good to be back. Glad to have you. So today's article is a very interesting one to me. The title is What a NIMBY Victory in Plano Means for the Future of Urban Planning in Texas. It was published in D Magazine and written by Peter Simek. According to the article, the city of Plano, Texas, earlier this month voted unanimously to repeal their recent updated comprehensive plan called Plano Tomorrow, and they instead replaced it with their original 1986 master plan. The Plano Tomorrow plan was adopted in 2015 and has since sparked heated local controversy and a long legal feud seeking its repeal. With the reasoning being fears of, quote, dangerous amounts of density that would erode the suburban city's character, end quote. Something that caught my eye when researching this story was the fact when the plan was first adopted, a resident collected over 4,000 signatures on a petition calling on the city council to repeal their master plan or let the voters decide its fate. Apparently, the secretary never forwarded the petition along, reasoning that the plan falls outside the bounds of a referendum, which resulted in a lawsuit that the city ended up losing on July 23rd when the Texas State 5th District Court of Appeals ruled that master plans are, in fact, subject to referendum petitions. So, Daniel, you wrote a little bit about this earlier this week on Strong Towns, and I'm curious if you want to talk about kind of your your first impressions of this story. So I'd love to get your sense as someone who is practicing as a planner right now, unlike me, because I read this and my first thought was, this is absolutely crazy. And it took a while to sort of wrap my head around what happened here, because it turns out that in Texas, you can, a citizen petition can get a ballot measure on the ballot to repeal essentially any local ordinance other than a tax. And that itself, I can see the merits of that. I can see the pitfalls of that. But when applied to something like a comprehensive plan, which is a massively involved procedure that has to be done in a very specific way, you've got a lot of public engagement, you've got thousands of staff hours of data collection and research and work that goes into this document that's meant to capture a whole bunch of nuance about the the community's vision for how it's going to evolve. And this is a multi-year process. And then to have angry citizens who kind of have a single issue that they're focused on be able to just throw out the entire thing through a ballot measure, it just feels kind of like asymmetric warfare to me. So I had an immediate gut reaction. This makes no sense, like that you should be able to throw out a comprehensive plan, this this massive product, without really going through a process of proposing anything in its place just by ballot referendum, where all you're saying is, no, we don't know what we do want, but we don't want this. It just seems like a recipe for paralysis and for really nasty divisive politics. Um, Abby, what's your read on that? 
you looked in at, to the the court's reasoning in Texas a little bit more than I think I did. And do you think that the courts were even right to say that, yes, this ballot measure would be valid, Plano has to put it to a vote of its citizens? Um, what, what's your take on the whole kind of legal aspect of what just happened here and its significance for planning? <laughs> so I guess I'll preface all of this by saying that I am not an attorney, but this story just really frustrated me when I first read it and started researching what happened. And I do want to take a moment to break down a few things because I think that this situation represents a complete misunderstanding of typical planning and zoning statutes and laws and the intention of a comprehensive plan. But I think in this case, judges and lawyers involved are not going to get that because it has now become a controversy around the merits of sprawl versus urbanism. So I want to break that down. First of all, a comprehensive plan is a policy document. It does not hold regulatory power, meaning that any legal change to your property would need to happen through separate zoning processes. A comprehensive plan is a broad citywide policy that is intended to support decision-making as requests are brought forward to planning staff and the planning commission and then the city council. Second of all, a comprehensive plan is a document of the planning commission typically, not the council. This is a long-term policy document that's developed through these public processes and adopted by the planning commission that guides how community is to evolve. The comprehensive plan is intentionally intended to be shielded from short-term politics because planning is intended to be long-term, planning 20 years and then being updated or reviewed every five years. Many cities end up having their city council adopt their comprehensive plan. So I'm curious if that's the case here. It sounds like it is. Many cities end up doing that even if their statutes don't require it. It's kind of a gesture that indicates the planning commission and city council are on the same page, but could arguably result in unintended consequences when faced with legal challenges. Third, like I said, the comprehensive plan is not a regulating document, and I believe their original response of not seeing it as subject to referendum is correct. Ordinances are often subject to referendum for good reasons. Subjecting a comprehensive plan to a public vote is incredibly irrational, in my opinion. And if the APA doesn't get involved, then I'm at a loss because I think they're setting a horrible precedent. Fourth, let me just highlight that a planning process is an opportunity for the community and stakeholders to come together and develop a set of principles and policies that will guide long-term decisions for staff in the planning commission. This is a democratic process, and in a democratic process, not all of the ideas of individuals with certain you know, beef should be able to derail the hard work of everybody else. It's called consensus. If the public process was flawed, then that's a separate conversation that could legitimize the argument of redoing the plan. But if the public genuinely had the opportunity to meaningfully contribute and interact with this process, it sets a horrible precedent if disgruntled citizens can turn this into a political issue and overhaul all the work that was done. And it's especially frustrating because I read the plan, which we can talk about if you want, and it doesn't really seem to be as controversial as the article and many other articles make it out to be. You talked about disgruntled citizens and sort of the substance of the disgruntlement was something I was trying to wrap my head around. And 
my read on it, I might not be attuned to all the nuances of Plano politics, but I live in a city, Sarasota, Florida, kind of an edge city outside of Tampa that is, I think, similar to Plano in that it's overwhelmingly suburban and car oriented with a small, much denser kind of high rise downtown that's experienced really rapid growth in recent decades. So my read on the politics of this was an interesting thing to me because so Plano has now reverted after choosing to scrap its its comprehensive plan rather than put it to a public vote. They've reverted to their master plan from 1986. And I got curious and I looked up, well, what was the population of Plano, Texas in 1986? And it was about a third of what it is today. And at the time, it was overwhelmingly a bedroom community for Dallas to the south. And Plano isn't that anymore. It grew according to this template that is sort of textbook growth Ponzi scheme, as as we at Strong Towns would call it, where you kind of spring up, you know, cookie cutter shopping plazas and subdivisions over and over again, and none of them are actually going to bring in enough revenue, enough secure tax base to fund their own maintenance over time. But as long as you keep growing, you can sort of you know, I don't want to, it's not a Ponzi scheme in a conspiratorial sense where anyone's trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, but it's sort of this, it's got that pyramid structure to it where the only way you are keeping up with your budgetary needs is that new growth is funding the liabilities created by old growth. And so I think Plano has this history of growing this way. And now the city is quote unquote built out, which, you know, I hate that phrase. And that's sort of a separate discussion, maybe why I hate it. But Plano has filled up its borders it's surrounded by other cities, it cannot horizontally expand. And Plano has, around its downtown and its train station and in select areas of the city, Plano has densified quite a bit. You know, there are far more jobs there than there were a generation ago. The It's really a city in its own right to a greater extent, as opposed to just a bedroom community for other cities in the region. And I think you have sort of a, a cohort of longtime residents who feel like something is the rugs being pulled out from under them like this isn't the place that I bought into and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of mistrust among people who don't seem to have the sort of the the vocabulary or the nuance around well why is Plano changing and who's responsible and what sort of future is reasonable to chart for this place and so ideally the the comprehensive planning process should be a chance to do really robust creative public engagement and get residents talking not about, you know, this building proposal or that road widening or narrowing or specific projects, but about what is our vision affirmatively for what we want our community to be. And so it's really depressing to me, but also really familiar to look at what's happening in Plano. And the read I get on it is that instead this fear-based politics seems to be dominating the conversation where it's, I... I moved here, you know, whenever I did, and I thought Plano was one thing. And now I feel like I'm losing the place that I was comfortable with, and it's becoming something else, and I want someone to blame for that. And so a handful of opponents of this comp plan have really fixated on this narrative about high density and gridlock and overcrowded schools, and they're going to transform our city until it's unrecognizable. And we don't want this, and the city isn't listening to us. And I want to say to those people, what do you want? And you want things to stay the same. Okay, let's talk about why that maybe isn't an option. Let's talk about the city's budgetary needs. How's it going to keep providing the level of service? 
that that you expect from it? How is Plano going to be affordable to people who want to live there? There are all these questions you can get into of what kind of life do we actually want for ourselves in this place that get short-circuited by this discussion of they're trying to change my city and I don't like it and I'm just going to say no. And so my, I, I'm just left the 4,000 people who signed this petition in a city of 300,000. I just want to be able to ask them, okay, you've made it very clear what you don't want. What do you want? That is why public engagement is so important when you're doing a comprehensive plan. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because I don't know how the public engagement process went. Um, this, you know, it could have been a great public engagement process. And the, these are just, you know, a very small percentage of people who have decided to unfortunately derail all the work that was done. Um, so I can't speak to what their process was, but in, in most cases, it is so important that, you know, in order for a plan to not be derailed, to have conversations, address elephants in the room up front as part of this process. Because, you know, I, I read the plan and I looked at the content of the plan online and it actually doesn't seem that controversial. And I think that a lot of the conclusions in the plan are correct in terms of growing up, not being able to grow out. How do you do that effectively? I actually found the land use plan. So it maps nine different land use categories, characterizing the majority of areas as single family. It also pinpoints specific intersections as neighborhood centers, which would include a mix of commercial and a variety of residential uses established in a, quote, context-sensitive way. The only categories that really call for any significant density is the what they define as compact complete centers and transit corridors, which are still defined as single-family infill to mid-rise buildings. They have a growth and change map that very clearly identifies opportunities for redevelopment of conventional car-centric retail centers into more desirable places. It's actually very uncontroversial from the broad plan, you know, based on my interpretation. So it's kind of crazy how it's blown up so much. What I also think is really interesting is that although Plano is definitely not urban, it's kind of dense as a suburb. If these people are worried about density, then I think that they're living in the wrong city, first of all. And, you know, I, I think that they need to compare what the residential neighborhood density is compared to some of the apartment complexes they might be complaining about. Because when you look at the apartment complexes, they're, they don't look very dense to me. They're actually pretty spread out, surrounded by tons of open space. So I actually think that what they're complaining about is not necessarily density, because you need to be thinking about density at different scales. And you know if that actually even means anything. Personally, I, I don't think density means much. I think that there's other elements that people um, should care about, and there may be other elements that people are using fear in this case that, that isn't necessarily associated with this math equation. The less compact areas are most of their existing commercial centers, which I have to say are really brutal, and they're not great great designed places. And if I were a citizen there, I definitely would want them redeveloped into places that are worth caring about long-term. What they're lacking is walkable urban places, which might include other types of housing within them, which sounds like 
you know, the actual source of, you know, what, what these people have a problem with. And that's what the plan was calling for, walkable places with good urban design, places that actually might make adjacent neighborhoods more valuable over time. So derailing it over fears of density is an unfortunate misunderstanding of what this plan was actually calling for from my perspective. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So there seems to be a disconnect between what's in the plan and the rhetoric being circulated by opponents of the plan. Density is kind of a tough word because I think people use it as a proxy for a number of other things that they don't have the vocabulary for. And you seem to be suggesting that, you know, it's not even that they're mistaken about, uh, I, I mean, that can happen. It's possible for for example, and you said this, for a neighborhood of single-family homes that are packed pretty tightly together without big yards can actually end up being denser than an apartment complex that has like a huge parking lot in front of it and a stormwater buffer between that and the road and all this other stuff going on. So dense, density as a math equation is deceptive in that it doesn't say that much about the visual appearance of what you're actually looking at or how it fits in with its surroundings. You know, I certainly see that in Florida, where the word density really becomes the fixation of people who are opposed to development. And if you dig in a little, what they're actually opposed to is something else. There's something else that's making them uncomfortable. And it might be traffic on the roads. It might be tall buildings just changing their perception of how the city looks and feels. Um, It might be, you know, in Plano, they cited concerns about things like school overcrowding. And I don't know enough to know whether those concerns are legitimate anywhere in Plano. It seems to me like there is a much bigger kind of, there is a collective conversation that needs to happen in Plano that gets beyond buzzwords to what are the struggles people are having in this community? What's sort of a reality check about the local government's ability to pay its bills and about the city's ability to continue to function as a place? And then working together towards solutions that are actually palatable to people. And I'm kind of curious, Abby, because you, again, you're in the planning profession. I have the training in it, but I'm, you know, it's easy for me to be kind of a a writer and a a pundit online almost and just because I don't have to get in the trenches and do the work. So at Strong Towns, I think we have a tendency to be a little cynical about the comprehensive planning process. Like, certainly we've been cynical about public engagement before, that it's often sort of perfunctory and it asks the wrong questions and it ends up just being a smokescreen for the things that the the credentialed experts already wanted to do. And I think it's really easy to look at the rancor evolving around this and be like, well, what's the point of a comprehensive plan if it's not a regulatory document, it's not binding in any way, and it's not helping bring the community together around a vision. And it's not helping dispel any of these myths about density and gridlock and traffic and da, 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 da. it's just making everybody angry. I mean, is there, I know that neither you nor I, I think knows enough about how the process went down on the ground in Plano, in Plano, excuse me, plan. <laughs> um, I, I don't think either. I, I don't think we know enough to opine with any confidence about like what was wrong with their public engagement or what was right. But like these, these more fundamental issues of the growth Ponzi scheme, where you have a place that built up a, according to one model, and that model isn't going to work anymore, and it needs to evolve. How do you get around these sort of fear-based knee-jerk politics of, well, I'm against density, I'm against developers, and actually have a conversation about how do we move forward as a city? 
Well, I think starting with data is important because you cannot separate the long-term fiscal impacts of land use from the comprehensive planning process. I just don't know how you do that. So that needs to be, you know, that and other things that are data-driven need to be a start because you can't talk about where you're going if you don't know where you are. The public engagement process is not necessarily just an opportunity for people to A, feel good about themselves or B, you know, grandstand and just like fight in a public forum. It really needs to be a facilitated process that both educates people on what's going on and it's an opportunity to address elephants in the room and to actually start talking about what the biases are, why people have those biases. When it comes to density, again, it's it's a math equation. I've lived in a really lovable duplex that is 50 units per acre. Um, when people think 50 units per acre, they they freak out. So it's it doesn't actually tell you anything about the building, how it addresses the street, the characteristics of the street, how it impacts the neighborhood. It, it gives you no information. And so if you're judging everything based on density, yeah, maybe maybe you should be worried about that if your city is is basing everything on density because that gives you no expectations for what you're going to see in the future. So it's really important to you know, start with data and then talk about how your community wants to evolve over time because the the idea of just stifling things from happening we've seen it place and place again, it, that's not a good strategy. That's going to end up in the point of planning is, is to manage growth as it happens and to you know hopefully address it in a way that is good for everybody. It, it's good for the city's financial position long-term so that the city can exist in the future and then good for the people. So I think that that is really important and it's different in every comprehensive planning process. It you know, that every process is different because every community has different biases, different things that they have concerns about. And so, yeah, it's a really nuanced process. And, and that's how, you know, the cities, the consultants, whoever need to be addressing it that way and having empathy for the biases that do exist and trying to kind of not only educate, but listen to people and try to address what, what actual concerns are. I, I love the way you put that. The education and the listening piece, the two-way conversation seems so important. That just seems to have been stifled in a case like Plano's. Like it's it's not a reasonable expectation to move into a place and then 30 or 40 or 50 years later get to demand that it be the same place that you moved into. And that's not an issue of who's right or wrong in terms of political factions or like who's who's got the right agenda for the future, that's just an issue of that is not possible. Change is going to hit you. And I'm dismayed that it seems like any process of bringing the community together to reckon with that change has been short-circuited in this case. Well, now that Texas has decided to establish such a murky precedent, we can flip the merits. Apparently now, if your city has a plan that promotes sprawl, a political group can now gather signatures for a petition for a referendum to vote the plan out by the people in favor of a plan that supports walkable urban places. 
So, you know, I, I, I wonder, is this, really mm-hmm. yeah. is this really a precedent that you want to set Texas? You know, no facilitated engagement, no data-driven studies or evidence, just political fights and ballot referendums. If that's how you want to do planning, I wish you the best. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's a, that's a good, um, if, if unsatisfying note to end on. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Well, before we end this episode, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we get to share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, or just things that have been captivating our time. So Daniel, what have you been up to these days? Um, the big thing um, occupying my time has been um, having all of the duct work in my house redone because Murphy's Law dictates that if you live in South Florida and your air conditioning is going to break, it's going to break in August. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, we, we're, we're taking refuge right now at my in-law's condo, and hopefully we'll go home tomorrow to a cooler house. But that's been an adventure, and I've gotten to discover all sorts of things that were installed in the 1990s in really boneheaded ways. Yep. I, I know the feeling. We didn't have air conditioning until mid-June. We got it all fixed up. So yeah, it's brutal out there and I can't imagine not having AC in Florida. Yeah. it's um, Fans will only do so much before they're just blowing hot air in your face. Uh-huh. Exactly. It almost makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> So this week I've been on kind of a throwback kick with movies. For some reason, um, you know, after listening to We Are Going to Be Friends by the White Stripes, it kind of woke up some memories that must have been buried deep inside my brain because I immediately decided to watch Juno and then Napoleon Dynamite, which (laughs) I was surprised to remember that both movies feature that song. So (laughs) you never know what's in your brain, I guess. But after that, in honor of us to be, you know, we are soon to be transitioning into spooky season, I decided to watch Disturbia, which was a really good throwback. And fun fact, the serial killer in Disturbia has an accessory dwelling unit on his property where he murders somebody, which is not the intended use of an ADU, Uh but it was, uh, (laughs) I didn't catch that the first time years ago. And can you get a conditional use permit for that? You may be able to get a conditional use permit on that. A murder shack in your backyard. Yes, but the planner would have to have a clear link to the comprehensive plan in order to approve the conditional use permit. See how that works? (laughs) Comprehensive (laughs) planning. It might just save lives. It might just save lives. Well, thanks so much. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Abby.